Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds and the, wild, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Whilst the Psalms cover a wide range of themes, the most common theme in all of the Psalms is praise. Um, and Psalm 8 is the first Psalm of praise in the Psalter. It's the first one that speaks of, of praising God. And the central theme of Psalm 8 is the greatness and the majesty of God's name. The same phrase, exactly the same phrase, bookends a psalm there at the beginning in verse 1 and at the end in verse 9. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in verse 1, David declares that God's name is great in all of the universe because it is supreme in all the earth. He says, God's name is majestic in all the earth. And of course, if you have the greatest name in the earth, then you hold the highest place on the earth. And then he goes from the earth to the heavens, and he says it's supreme in the heavens. There, second heart of verse 1, you have set your glory in, or perhaps better translated, above the heavens. And the thought there is that God's glory is above that which is highest in our creation. So those two phrases there in verse 1, focusing on the greatness of God, make up what we call a merism because they cover everything in creation. You start with the earth at the start of verse 1 and you get to the heavens at the end of verse 1 and they're bringing out the fact that God's majesty is over all things. The greatness of our God. But then having done that, this psalm uh, is unique and special in the way that it calls us to praise our God in his greatness because of the way in which God's majesty is displayed in his supreme creation, which, of course, is mankind, humanity. And the rest of the psalm will focus upon how, God, how people display God's majesty. Now, now, this psalm teaches many key things about who we are as people. But before we get to those elements, we shouldn't miss... And we started here with the fact that the psalm begins and ends with God. It starts and is focused upon praising God, and it ends and is focused upon praising God. And that reminds us that who we are as people 
is all put in the context of who we are in relation to God. And that makes the key point that we cannot understand who we are as human beings and our calling as mankind until we understand who God is. It's all in the context of our creator and who he is. Now, many have noticed that in the last few decades, humanity has had an identity crisis like we have never had before. People say, and rightly so, we no longer know who we are. Now, some have responded to this identity crisis by encouraging people to know themselves better, to explore um, themselves better in that sense. But this psalm shows us, and the structure of this psalm shows us, that in order to know who we are, we need first to know our God and to know whom God is. And the reason why so many struggle to know who they are is that we have turned away from our God. We cannot know our identity. We cannot know the purpose for our existence without reference to our creator in whom we live and move and have our being. John Calvin puts it like this. No man can survey himself without first turning his thoughts towards God in whom he lives and moves. But having started with God, then we can begin to understand who we are. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time on this evening as we look at this psalm that that tells us that God's majesty is displayed in humanity. It's the uniqueness of this psalm, this way in which God's majesty is made known through people. And we're going to see three ways in which God displays his majesty in this psalm in people. We'll jump around a bit to to tie them together. But the first is that God shows his majesty in his remarkable care for insignificant people. Here we're going to look at verses 3 and verse 4. Well, if you've ever joined uh, us in uh, our joy of camping, you will know that one of the benefits of living outside for a week or two is that you get to see more of the sky at night. Because, of course, when you camp, you often live away, you're often away from other light sources. And uh, this summer, being as warm as it was and the skies being as clear as they were, we had some astonishingly clear nights on our camping holiday. One evening, Naomi, uh, Noah, and I were walking back to the tent, and we spent a few minutes just looking at the night sky and observing different stars and constellations. And we were marveling afresh at, the, afresh at the wonder of the sky. And that's what David does there in verse 3. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, just with his eyes, I'm told that David could have probably seen a few thousand stars when he looked up to the heavens. And of course, we have earth telescopes and even space telescopes, and so we know and can see through those instruments billions of stars in the sky. But notice how the huge universe and cosmos is described, and notice the possessive pronouns there, because they're key, aren't they? Look at what David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. You know, everyone stares in awe and wonder at the stars because they are amazing. 
But how sad it is that so few recognize that those stars were made by God and belong to him. And one of the reasons why they are there is to point us to the God who made them. E.J. Young uh, put it like this. He said, the entirety of creation, visible and invisible, speaks with voices clear and positive of the glory of the holy God. Wherever we turn our eyes, we see marks of his majesty and should lift our hearts in praise to him who is holy. This is his world, the wide theater in which his glory is displayed. What a lovely ending phrase, the wide theater of the glory of God. But David's reflection upon the vastness of the cosmos is actually to contrast with the big thing he wants to say. You know, just looked at the vastness of the heavens in verse 3 and then look down at verse 4 because that's the big thing he wants us to get us to. Because he comes to verse 4 in contrast and he says, when I consider your, your heavens, Lord, then verse 4, he says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Compared to the whole cosmos and all that God has made, people seem so insignificant, and yet God cares for them. You know, if we just try and get our heads around this, it's astonishing as you think about it. If we just think about our own solar system, the Earth itself is so very small. If the sun were scaled down to the size of a basketball... If you then scale down the earth on the same scale size, do you know how big it would be? The size of a seed. But then, of course, people are even smaller, aren't we? So if the earth was scaled down to the size of a basketball, a single human being would be the size of 38 nanometers which is far smaller than the seed, you can only see that with, the size of a, with an electron microscope. It's the size of a small virus. It's astonishing when you think about it, isn't it? The vastness of the universe. The smallness of humanity. And David says, therefore, what is mankind? We are so small and insignificant. He's humbled by that. You know, it, it's said that, that Teddy Roosevelt like to end the day with a friend by going out to look at the stars at night. And he would look in the sky for a particular star, and he would say, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromedia. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And then he would say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Now, it's good to marvel and to be humbled at the vastness of the universe. But David goes even further than that, doesn't he? He doesn't stop there. He marvels at something even greater. God's care and kindness towards humility. Sorry, towards humanity, even though we are so insignificant. Look at what David says in verse 4. What is mankind that you are mindful of them. God knows us. He is mindful of us. What are human beings that you care for them? God acts for us and he cares for us. And when you think about those things, it's astonishing, isn't it? Little me, 
little you, the vastness of the cosmos, and yet God knows us by name. Yet God has numbered the hairs on our heads, and he cares for us. So alongside that right sense of humility in the vastness of the universe, we need to have our hearts warmed by these verses because it reminds us that God's care for us isn't because we are big compared to the vast universe. We are small, and yet God cares because of his kindness and his grace. Such is the majesty of our God. God displays his majesty in his remarkable care for insignificant people. But then secondly, God displays his majesty in his surprising use of weak people. And here we come back up to verse 2 where we read, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Now, who are the weak people in this verse? Well, they're the children and infants, and of course, they're the smallest and the weakest people in society. The, the word there for infants is literally sucklings, which of course reminds of the dependence of the young upon their mothers for food and nourishment. But what are these weak people doing? Well, they are offering praise to God. And how does God use their praise? Well, here's a surprising thing of how God uses their praise. God uses the praise of these weak ones to be a stronghold and to silence his enemies. He uses their words of praise to cast down the powers that are raised up against him. And that shows the majesty and the greatness of our God. That he would use weak things to accomplish that great work of silencing his enemies. Maybe this illustration will help us to see that. I, in my garage, I have a number of power tools. And I have those tools because there are jobs I cannot do with my bare hands or even with hand tools. So if I take a piece of wood, I can't chop it with my hands. I need a saw. And there are some pieces of wood, we have about 20 at the end of our garden, that at some point we're going to make some flower beds with. And I'm not going to cut that with a saw because they're too thick and they're too strong. I need a powerful tool. I need the tool that I wish I had, but I'm not allowed, a powerful circular saw. Great tool, very dangerous. But here's the thing. God takes the weakest of tools... God takes the bluntest of instruments, the, play, the praise of weak and dependent children and infants, and he uses them to accomplish the hardest of tasks, the defeat of his enemies, to demonstrate his power and his majesty. You know, this verse was fulfilled in the life of Christ. Jesus used it to silence his foes. In Matthew 21, in verses 12 to 17, when Jesus had come to Jerusalem and there had entered the temple and demonstrated his power by healing the blind and the lame, the children see Jesus' great works and they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and teachers of the law are indignant at Christ's works and they mock the praise of the young. And Jesus quotes this verse as a word of judgment against the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And it brings silence 
the praise of children silences the chief priests and teachers of the law because God shows his majesty when he uses the weak things of our worlds to confound the wise and the strong. Such is the greatness of our God. And friends, what confidence that should give us when we feel weak and inadequate in the work that God has called us to do. Perhaps we feel our our sense of weakness when we share the gospel. And we think, Lord, I I don't think I I can communicate this clearly. Lord, I don't think I have all the answers. But isn't that how God delights to work? That his majesty might be displayed as he works through weak people because that shows the greatness of his glory. So God displays his majesty in his remarkable care for insignificant people. God displays his majesty in his surprising use of weak people. Then thirdly, and this is the bulk of the psalm, God displays his majesty in his dignified calling for all people. And here we come to verses 5 and verse 8. And we notice here three key things taught about humanity in verses 5 to 8. We see the place of humanity there in verse 5. These three are all sub-points to this third point. We see the place of humanity. Notice how mankind is described. We read, you have made them a little lower than the angels. Now, the translation of the word angels is difficult. And the footnote in our Bibles, if you have an NIV, says, reminds us it could also be God. So the Lord has made them a little lower than himself. And I think that's a better way to understand the psalm here. But, but even if it is angels, the point is that God has given humanity a very high place. Just a little lower than God himself. Just a little lower than the angels, if it's that. And isn't it striking that our place is not compared to the animals or the plants? It doesn't say God has made us a little higher than the animals and the plants. It says that our place is compared to the great God of heaven, and we are just a little lower than him because we have a place of great honor, a dignified calling. But then we also see Not just a place of humanity, the image of God in humanity. Again, verse 5, we read there, but yet God has crowned them with glory and honor. The second part of verse 5. In verse 1, we saw that glory and honor rightly belong to God. But that glory in some ways is reflected and shown in people. And that's the privilege we have as humanity, that we bear the image of God, that we have been crowned with that glory and that honor. You know, isn't it striking that God didn't choose to make a cathedral or a great piece of art to display his glory and greatness? He chose people to bear his image. He chose humanity to show his greatness. And this image of God, this glory and honor with which we have been crowned, is part of our creation. It's a gift of God. It it can't be lost or taken from us because it always is and always will be what we are. So we are dignified in our position and we are dignified through our image bearing. But then also notice there in verses 6 and 7, the calling of humanity We have our position and we bear God's image 
And also, we have authority and dominion over creation. Now, now it's God's creation. It's a work of God's hands. It's what he has made. But we are called, verse 4, to rule over the work of God's hands. In the plan of God, all things have been put under our feet in that sense, in our dominion. And we rule over the vegetation, the plants, over the animals, there, verse 7, whether domestic or wild. Over the animals in the sea or the sky, verse 8. The point is we rule over everything under God. And our place, our image bearing, and our calling displays the majesty of God to the world because we act like God, for God, in his creation. Now, friends, that means that human beings have great dignity, value, and purpose. You know, here God is helping us to understand and helping us to come through our struggles around identity and purpose. Because once we see that we are made by him, once we see that we are made to know him, we come to see that we have callings given by God to rule over this world. We see, therefore, that our value as people doesn't come from our output. It doesn't come from our exam results or our job titles or our bank balances or our reputation. It comes from the position that God has given us, that we are a little lower than him. And we are crowned with our creator's glory and honor made to rule over his creation. This is the answer to the identity crisis. This is the answer to know our God and to know who we are. And what a gift God has given us. But how sad it is, therefore, in light of that amazing gift that we suppress that truth, that we deny that truth, particularly in how we treat other people, other image bearers. You know, to our shame, we fail to treat human life with the dignity and value as we should. Our, our dominion and our dignity means that one human being is worth more than thousands of trees or thousands of animals. And yet, what do we see in our world? I, I was struck afresh by the way in which we've got things all the wrong way round. Because we see millions who are prepared to march against climate change... We see people who are prepared to block the M25 to try to save the planet. And yet, what's the contrast? Well, the contrast is that so little is done to seek to protect the unborn. We've got it all the wrong way around, friends. This lack of respect and concern for humanity is seen in so many ways. It happens when we don't value those who are disabled as he would any other human being. And that's wrong. It happens when we, don't, when we treat people with, with prejudice or partiality because of their skin pigmentation or because of their ethnic background. And that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. It happens when the, when the elderly are mistreated or forgotten. And it shouldn't happen. And it's a scandal and a great judgment upon our nation and upon our world that we have the priorities all wrong, friends. We value animals and the planet more than people. 
who were given dominion and that higher place over everything on all creation. And the thing we have to see, and what this psalm shows us, is that our treatment of people and our worship of God is linked. Because our worship of God and his majesty is tied to how we recognize the dignity and the value of God's supreme creation of humanity. John Piper helped me to see this this week when he pressed his home like this. He said, you cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God whilst treating his supreme creation with contempt. And that's why, as Bible-believing Christians, we should be against all these evils. Because when we do these evils as a nation and as a world, we are denying the value of the supreme work of God. And so we are denying the majesty of God. And so we should be speaking about the value and the dignity of life. We should even be contending for change in government policy because that is showing a right concern for the majesty of God displayed in his supreme creation of humanity. Now the treatment of human life is just one area where we see that our world is not aligned to the pattern of this psalm. In fact, as we think about it, there is a huge mismatch between our worlds and the vision of this psalm. Because sin has corrupted everything. Creation is in rebellion against the dominion of humanity. So all things are not under our feet as God intended. Now we know that if we look in our gardens. Because what do we see? We see the weeds growing up. I was struck uh, cycling home this week. There is a, a building site where they're building loads of houses on Montague Road. And I go past it every day. And they've been working on this building site to bring about so much order among the chaos that was there before. But right in the middle of it, they've built this mound of earth where they're building up the earth, probably saving it to spread it in different places. But it looks now like a forest because it's covered in weeds. Weeds remind us of the fact that creation is in rebellion against that which has created it. And of course, we don't care for creation as we should. (laughs) We're lazy, we let the weeds grow in all the the order they're building on that building site. They've done nothing about the weeds. And we let the weeds grow in our garden. More seriously, we don't care for the creation as we should. We don't care for animals as we should. We, We harm them, we abandon them. We see that the world is not as it should be. And so as we look at our worlds and we look at this psalm, we're left with a question. The question is this, how is it going to be put right? How is it going to be made new? And that's what we have to read on in our Bibles. It's interesting, Richard chose to read from Hebrews chapter 1 to start our service. And I want to take us to Hebrews chapter 2. Where we read in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus Christ has come to deal with all this disorder, to deal with all the problems that are at work in our world. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author acknowledges this mismatch between what we see in the creation and the reality of the psalm because he quotes uh, the psalm in verses 4 to 6. And then he says, verse 8, middle of verse 8, where he comes out the quote, 
in putting everything under them, God has left nothing that is not subject to them. That's what we've been speaking of this evening. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. And that's true, isn't it? That's what we've observed. But then he continues, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What's the author telling us? The author's telling us that Christ's life, death, and resurrection give us hope. How? This is how. Jesus came to be the perfect man, which means he went through great humiliation. He took upon himself a fully human nature. And then he came to this earth to rule it as God intended, as the perfect image bearer of God in that sense. And that meant he needed to deal with the mess that we have created in our hearts through sin and the mess that we see in our world through sin. And he did that through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave. Because he tasted death, because he bore the punishment for those who believe, that is the promise, therefore, that through his death and resurrection, there will be a day when the effects of sin will be gone from us and gone from our creation. We will enjoy the vision there of Psalm 2 in its fullest sense. And so in that way, Psalm 2 is not just a psalm that looks backward to creation. Where else does it look? It looks forward to the new creation. It looks forward to the fulfillment of Christ's great work of redemption, which begins with people, but we're promised as he returns, will mean that the whole of creation will know that order restored. And then in that sense, the majesty of God's name will be fully seen in all the earth. So in its fullest sense, this psalm is about Christ in his life and in his work. It points us forward to what Jesus has come to do. But then here's a question. We've seen reality. We've seen the psalm. We've seen Hebrews 2. How do we know? How can we be sure this is going to happen? Well, Hebrews tells us We can be sure this is going to happen. We can be sure of the promises of that new creation because we see Jesus now. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, having gone through the cross and through the grave. And his journey sets the path that his people and indeed all creation itself will follow. In the 16th century in Europe, there was great speculation that there should be, and they all thought there should be, a sea route from Europe to India, around the bottom of Africa. But no one had been able to travel around the Cape to prove it. It was possible. So people hoped there was a route, but there was never any evidence that there was one until one man, Vasco da Gama, was able to sail around the Cape and then back to Europe to prove there was a route to India by sea. Because he went on that journey, and he returned, he proved there was a path. And in the same way, our hope is secured through the path of Jesus. 
through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his glorification now, he confirms to us that there is a route through the mess that we see now. And it's a route for those who trust him by faith and know him as their savior. So there is hope for us. There is hope for creation. Because we see Jesus one day Psalm 8 will be fulfilled. So friends, what do we do here and now? Well, what we do here and now is that we trust the Lord Jesus by faith. We serve him seeking to be the people, the men and women in dominion over creation that he has called us to be. And we look forward to that day when he returns and he makes all things new. We keep our eyes fixed on him and we know that as surely as Christ came and died and rose again, so we, and indeed all of creation, will know that same journey by the grace of God.